You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by biologist Nick Burnett from the Department of Integrated Biology. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for being here. And uh, so as far as I know, just from like walking around the building, because we're in the same building, you have, you guys have like your own section because you're a little bit different. You're in biomechanics? Yes. So there are, within our department, there's three labs that do biomechanics, or three main labs. But we have a shared space in the basement where there's a lot of the bigger equipment or the more expensive stuff that we all need access to. Um, that's the cyber center. So cyber, big equipment in the basement. What exactly is biomechanics? Why is it its own section? So biomechanics is the combination of biology and engineering or physics. So it's using principles of engineering or physics to answer biological questions or the reverse, using biology to inspire uh, knowledge of engineering or physics. Can you give us an example that's either come out of your your lab or your working group or just something that people might be familiar with? One of the things that came out of another lab in the biomechanics group are adhesives that were inspired by gecko feet. And these adhesives don't need glue or don't need suction to stick to basically anything. They can just, using molecular bonds, stick to everything. So that's like how they walk up walls, for example. You're talking about like, you know, little geckos walking up walls, walking on ceilings. So you're saying that people looked at the geckos and they were like, man, how did they do that? And then once they figured it out, they were like, well, we could make other... It, we could make adhesives that do this. Because I know I, I read about something about like adhesives in space, right? Or like different applications for these yes, crazy so adhesives. You could make uh, robots walk up walls if you put synthetic adhesives that are modeled after these gecko adhesives onto the robot's feet. So you could you know, send a robot up a wall. Or uh, another application that I've heard about is using those adhesives on Band-Aids so that you would not need to have glue on the Band-Aid, um, and you could just stick it on. And I think that would make a much more sterile healing environment for your wound. And another cool thing about these bio-inspired adhesives are that they are self-cleaning. So you could have this gecko walk through a bunch of dirt, and then the dirt would kind of be pushed off. But okay. that's not my particular area of research, yeah. so I can't answer <laughs> no worries. questions. Uh, I'm glad you guys are called Cyber and not Skynet, because then I'd be a little worried, right? <laughs> <laughs> Those but... are the guys in the engineering, mechanical engineering okay. department. All Worry the way. about them. Okay. Um, so you said you don't work on adhesives. What, what do you work on? So I work on the interaction of flexible organisms with their fluid environment. So whether that would be uh, a plant in wind, with wind and air being the fluid, or seaweeds and water, and the water is a fluid there, obviously. So each organism experiences a unique flow environment in the ocean or near the coast. Seaweeds are experiencing water that moves back and forth as each wave comes up onto shore and then falls back again. And then there's also the slower time scale movement of currents where a current could change with the tides or more seasonally. So I, I kind of I study how seaweeds are adapted mechanically to survive that kind of fluid motion. So whereas other people in the department might study the evolution of seaweeds or like who their closest relatives are, you're specifically interested in their mechanical properties. Correct. 
Nice. Okay. So I guess the first question I have is, were you always really interested in engineering and mechanics? Were you building little things as a child, you know, breaking tree branches down, trying to see, you know, how far you could throw them or whatever it is people um, like you do growing up? <laughs> people like me. I was always into Legos. And once I was yelled at by my parents for taking apart the computer, which I could not put back together, but I only ever took one physics class in college, and I really didn't even hear the term biomechanics until I was applying to graduate programs. So very much so an ecologist and a biologist. And so what was your undergraduate in then? My undergraduate was in biological sciences, and I had a, a minor in chemistry. And then you just like were deciding to apply to graduate school and you're like, oh, biomechanics, that sounds cool. I'm going to do it. Or Well, I had always heard of biophysics, which is slightly different than biomechanics. I guess it's using principles of physics to inform biology. Um, but I did some work as an undergraduate in biophysics labs looking at how temperature affected bivalve mollusks, so mussels and clams and oysters in the intertidal zone. So you've always... You, did you grow up near the ocean? I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, so near the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I grew, it was on a, a barrier island, so I could look out my back window and see the Charleston Harbor. So that definitely influenced my thinking and uh, general attitude towards the ocean. Yeah, because it seems like a lot of your work takes place in the ocean, or at least these tidal zone so must be a connection there okay you mentioned like mollusks and stuff is this where your limpet project came into play yes so that was that was kind of the culmination of my undergraduate research experiences so over three and a half years in in undergrad I worked in these labs and I kind of got a little bit of experience with basically building analog sensors that could measure simple things like humidity and temperature and then making physical models of these different bivalves so that we could measure what those bivalves were experiencing in the in the real world. So we put these sensors in them and see how fast they're drying out or how fast they're heating up. And then thanks to a very uh, important undergraduate mentor of mine, Dr. Fernando Lima from Portugal, he showed me how to do some more soldering and use accelerometers to make a contact microphone. So basically something that you could stick onto the surface and pick up the vibrations of that surface. And with that, you can listen to limpets and other snails chewing since these snails use a ribbon-like tooth structure called a radula to drag across the surface. And we could record them in the field, their natural daily cycles of when they feed or when they don't feed, pairing that to the tidal cycle. You know, Do they feed when the tide is high or do they feed when they're being hit by waves or what do they feed when the tide is low? So that was kind of a cool, like an observational study. Um, and I got a, a short publication out of that. And that was kind of my first inde- true, well, more independent project. Um, I did all the data collection myself. And then I did this all out at Uh, the Swire Institute of Marine Science with the University of Hong Kong. So I was able to record the rasping sounds of what I'm calling the fastest rasper in the the world, the fastest rasping rates recorded for limpets. And these aren't very exciting. I think we have, we'll play a recording of these, but they sound basically like, and that's the sound of that 
calcareous structure briefly dragging across the rock. So did you get to go to Hong Kong for this? Yes. I went to Hong Kong to start a collaboration um, between my university, the University of South Carolina, and uh, this professor, Dr. Gray Williams, at the University of Hong Kong. We took all the materials for building these contact microphones, and then I, I basically sat out in the water listening to limpets rasp for 12 or 16 hours. I got really sunburned, but we, we found out that uh, this particular species of limpet, Chalana grata, they have a really unique rasping pattern in that they, they feed only when they're being splashed by the waves, but not when they're totally covered or totally uncovered. So they have a, a unique time of feeding. And this helps us uh, in our understanding of the biology of these limpets because we can kind of predict how much food they're getting based on how much time they have to feed and then using other models of how does temperature affect their behavior or how does temperature affect their energetics, we can predict how climate change or other climate variables might affect their ability to grow and to reproduce. Okay, so because they're in Hong Kong, we can't call them the fastest raspers in the West, but they are the fastest raspers in the East. That's yeah. that's what you're telling me, yeah? Yeah. Bang, bang? So. And it, that could be a temperature thing, but it could also be a, a species-specific thing. Um, obviously, the waters in the tropics are a little bit warmer, so when things get hotter, they to typically move a little bit faster, have faster metabolism. So them being the fastest ones measured, as far as I know, in the, in the literature, in the scientific literature, could just be a, a fluke of the temperature. No, but that's really cool, and it's cool that you got to go to Hong Kong um, as an undergraduate. And yes, you're right, we do have a recording of these limpets rasping that we're going to play just so everyone can feel immersed in the uh, warm waters of Hong Kong. And you can even hear in that recording when the, the waves lap over the shell of the limpet, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, let's play it now. Yeah, it's happening. It's happening. Okay, sweet. Yeah, thanks for sharing that audio clip. That was really cool. And I've got sixteen hours of that. <laughs> well, probably more like like fifty or so. If you want more, I think there are some shows here on Calix that uh, might like some of that for some, you know, one a.m. Oh, mood music. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, cool. So that was your undergrad project. What are you working on here at Berkeley? So here at Berkeley, I'm combining field ecology with biomechanics. So we can just call that ecological biomechanics. And I work on this species of kelp called the feather boa kelp. Many of you probably have have seen it. It's the largest intertidal kelp that's on the west coast of North America. And it's called a feather boa kelp because it looks like a feather boa. It's it's basically a long, each each kelp has multiple long strap-like fronds that are covered with these little leaves or blades, and they can grow to be three feet or even 12 feet long, depending on, you know, the time of year. And I study how these kelp can survive the harsh hydrodynamic forces of waves hitting them over and over again, and how they grow and how 
their growth affects the strength of them. And then lots of other cool things about what it's like to be a flexible object that's constantly moving around, getting tangled, getting knotted. Okay, and before we continue further, I should say, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla, and today I'm joined by Nick Burnett, biologist in the Department of Integrative Biology, talking about his work in biomechanics and obviously with flexible organisms in fluid environments. So uh, these kelp, are these the ones you see on the beach all the time, washed up? So it depends on where you are, but... Probably the, the kelp that you're most familiar with washing up on the beach is, uh, is the bull kelp or the giant kelp. Those are two different species. The bull kelp is the one that has a single stem or stipe and with a, with a big ball or float on the end of it. People often like to jump rope with them or... Or pop the ends. Pop the ends. Yeah. But the reason that they're called, well, they're truly called the bull whip kelp, and it's because they look like a, a giant whip. Then there's the, the giant kelp, and those are the ones that uh, are infamous because they can grow two feet a day. Um, they typically live further offshore, but yeah, those ones are... Those are the, like the big kelp forests that David Attenborough talks about. Exactly. Those are the, the ones that are famous for the kelp forests. So the, the species that I study, uh, the, the name is Agrigia minzisii. Uh, is not usually found where the giant kelp are found, but they live a little bit shallower and up into the intertidal zone. And because of the the unique regime of waves constantly crashing on the shore, uh, this is the only kelp that can survive that. And so because of that unique ability and the largeness of their size, I study why they can survive there and why the other species can't. And we're talking in California, right? California, Oregon, Washington, even in Canada. So how do you study these? Do you have to actually go out to the intertidal zone to look at them? Yes. So I've been monitoring four populations or four areas where this kelp grows for the last two years. And because of their unique morphology, they're all, like I said, a bunch of straps, more or less. Uh, imagine your belt with a bunch of leaves on it. I go out and to measure their size, I measure the length of every single frond on there, and they can have as many as 100 fronds and a total length of 60 or even 80 feet. So it takes a while, and it's a little hard and mind-numbing, but that's why no one's done it so far, and I'm good at the mind-numbing work. <laughs> well, and if we're talking about an area where there's like a lot of waves crashing. How do the tides play into when you're able to go out there and do this work? Yeah, so I have to wait for a low tide. And since these kelp live in the lower intertidal zone, that means I have to wait for the best low tides. Typically, there's only a few each two weeks or each uh, lunar cycle because the tides are low when there's a full moon and when there's a new moon. And so I, I wait for these low tides, and then I go out, and, and I have probably a, a two- or three-hour window at each site to work. And then the hard part is when the tides are really early in the morning, which means I'm waking up at 3 o'clock or 3.30 and then driving an hour and a half out to my field sites near Bodega Bay and also near Point Reyes. Conversely, in the times when the tides are in the evening, I have to work really, really late, and that's just kind of tiring when you're doing multiple days over and over again 
No, but that, I mean, that sounds pretty cool. Not everyone gets to actually, especially in biomechanics, right? Not everyone actually gets to go out into the field and interact with their <laughs> organism. Because I know you do a lot of lab work too. Yes. Well, I told my advisor when I got here that if I could not do field work, then I would not be happy and I probably wouldn't want to work here. So I, I kind of crafted a project that would re require being out in the field, but also doing technical stuff in the lab. And it's worked out well so far. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you guys have like a bunch of big equipment that's associated with biomechanics. What are some of the machines or some of the pieces of equipment that you guys use, even in, in your own work or in collaborative projects? Uh, so I can talk about, so in my lab, we need to be able to recreate certain flow regimes. So we have a lot of tanks and things that look like tanks that help us recreate either wave-driven flow, so like a back-and-forth water motion, or unidirectional, so in one direction water flow. One of them is called a flume, and this just makes the water kind of, it's like a, a treadmill for water. It just goes on a loop, and then we, on one side of this circular piece of equipment, we work with the, whatever object, measuring maybe the forces that are acting on that object, like the drag forces, or we can use high-speed video cameras to measure how that object or that structure moves in the flow. We also have tow tanks, which help us achieve a very specific velocity, and we might drag whatever structure or piece of seaweed through the tow tank at half a meter per second for a total distance of two meters, and then we can measure very accurately or precisely the, the forces on that kelp or whatever object. Okay, that sounds pretty cool. Let's see, I know you you mentioned earlier that you did a collaborative project with some undergrads. It was like a little different than what you're doing for your own dissertation. Was that taking place in the lab mostly or out in the field? Yes, so that was all lab work. So it's basically a terrestrial version of my dissertation work. So this was a collaborative project with an undergraduate who's now graduated, uh, Adit Kotari, and we were looking at how leaves flutter in the wind and how herbivores sitting or chewing on that leaf might affect the interaction of the leaf with the wind. So this involved a lot of high-speed uh, video doing different experimental manipulations and then going through and tracking the leaf frame by frame. Uh, that was very exhausting. And then seeing under different movement parameters, so like maybe how fast the leaf is fluttering or the amplitude of its fluttering, how those parameters are affected by the presence or the mass of a, of a herbivore on the leaf. Okay. Can you tell us what the answer is? Leaves are very good at moving in wind, and the presence of an herbivore doesn't do much to it. However, an herbivore chewing a hole into a leaf does make the leaf flutter a lot faster. And that's pretty interesting because botanists have, have noticed previously that uh, damaged leaves, so leaves damaged by herbivores, tend to be dropped by the, the tree or the plant uh, pretty quickly. And so we have a, an actual fluid structure interaction mechanism behind that uh, observation. Yeah. Okay. And um, so you said this is like a terrestrial version, but it, it seems similar in that you're interested in, in the fluids and their effects. And you also mentioned that the kelp or the seaweed that you look at is unique in being like the only one that can survive in these really aggressive intertidal zones. Do you know what properties of it make it that unique? So it has a unique 
cross-sectional shape. So when I said it looks like your belt with a bunch of leaves on it, it is actually kind of flat like a belt, whereas most other kelp are circular in cross-section. So I'm trying to test the hypothesis that this unique cross-sectional shape is, is very important for the way it moves in the water and uh, how long it can survive in the intertidal zone. So there's a lot of things that can damage and cause that kelp to break, such as herbivores or being smashed up against a rock. And uh, I'm still looking at, at the mechanisms behind how this cross-sectional shape might help lessen those particular effects. So do you have any other spoil alerts for us in terms of your dissertation? Any other cool findings you want to throw at the audience? Yes, uh, a cool finding that I have uh, recently found. Mm -hmm. Discovered. <laughs> Discovered, yeah. <laughs> so I found that the natural phenomenon of seaweeds getting tangled is very important for the size regulation of that kelp. So if these kelp get too large, when the waves increase in size in, in the wintertime, those waves kind of kind of rip the entire kelp off the shore, and that's no good for the kelp because if you're not on the shore, you dead. And getting kind of pruned or beaten up and getting smaller is, is good for the long-term survival of the kelp. And so I found that these long fronds, through their interaction with the back-and-forth water motion, are able to get tangled or able to get knotted, and this helps them break more easily and decrease or shorten the length of their fronds and, and survive. So I've done experiments both in the field and in the lab that show that when a kelp frond is knotted, it increases the drag forces on that kelp, and it also causes the kelp to, to break more easily. So a lot of climbers out there might know that if you have a knot in your rope, that the knot reduces the strength of that rope. The same thing happens with the kelp. So a knotted kelp will break with about 15% smaller loads or smaller forces in an unknotted kelp frond. So if you have water kind of smashing against a bunch of kelp fronds, the one that's knotted will break more easily. Tangled fronds, kind of cool. They, they are infested with herbivores a lot more because they provide a more hospitable environment for small crustaceans and other organisms to, to live in. And those organisms are not very grateful. They, they kind of chew and eat up the frond and that causes it to break more easily because a wounded frond is not as strong as an unwounded frond. So I've done a bunch of experiments that measure the forces that are required to break fronds that are knotted, fronds that are wounded, and also measuring the, the amount of herbivores that live inside all of these tangled or untangled fronds. And I found some pretty cool results. So that's a unique uh, novel discovery. And that same principle of flexible objects being pushed around and tangled by the fluid environment also exists with uh, hair. And so I'm doing some experiments that show that tangled hair experience will, uh, smaller drag forces, uh, which is perhaps unexpected for some. And I'm doing more experiments now to, to see how that reduction in drag or reduction in the forces that tangled hair experience changes with the, the length of the hair or the amount of time that the hair is tangled and also the, the number of hairs. And so that's more of a, a physics-based question because a lot of, I don't know, well, maybe humans are the only organism that have pretty long hair, but we also have the, the tools to untangle that hair. 
um, a lot of animals, and you could probably correct me on this, don't what? have <laughs> yaks and woolly mammoths probably have, and horse tails and that kind of thing. But for the most part, a lot of animals don't have pretty long hair. Yeah, I, there are definitely some monkeys with like some really long tail hairs and things like that. But, okay, I, I thought of so many questions I want to ask while you were talking. One, does this mean that you are going to be really important in, like, the salon industry? Are you, <laughs> are you working on some new, like, fabulous hairstyles? No, so nothing with hairstyles, just straight-up physics. Like, what what does it take to be... I guess if you're if you have to have hair, would you want to have a lot of really short hair or a few long hairs? Because there are other physical consequences of having hair. So if you have a lot of long hair and you, you know, take a plunge in the river or whatever else, then uh, the more hair you have, that hair can hold more water, and that's uh, you know an extra mass. And so if you're an animal trying to escape a predator and you're weighed down or if you're really really big and you've got a lot of uh, extra mass that's a bigger energetic constraint and that could affect you know if you survive or not or if you get enough food but then in terms of temperature regulation hair um, can be important for buffering when you're really cold or staying dry or helping to promote evaporative cooling there's a lot of cool yeah. physical consequences of having hair, and I'm just looking at a, a novel approach of that fluid hair interaction. So not just humans, although many of those things you said apply to me with my hair, obviously. Yes. After like a day or two, I actually get headaches because it's so heavy that it actually pulls down on my head. And I use it when it's too hot. I use it to cover my shoulders so I don't get sunburned, all these yeah. things. So uh, think about the amount of time that you or someone you know might spend untangling their hair or even spending money on products like conditioner that help untangle their hair. And then imagine for an animal, if they had that much hair, the the time or the the money that they would have spent if they had a job and could spend money. And now um, all I'm all I'm imagining is like an animal with a bouffant or something. Yes, a bulbous bouffant. <laughs> yeah, nice. Okay, second question. So you kept mentioning um, the kelp breaking, but in this scenario, it's actually better to break right than to actually unroot entirely. Yeah. So there's a seasonal cycle in the in the summer in California and along the West Coast. The waves are typically a little bit smaller. And then winter, they get bigger. So when the waves are smaller, it's okay for the kelp to, to grow to be pretty big. And that's when they can reach those lengths that I talked about before of 12 feet. Or I think the largest one that I've seen it was 20, yeah, about 20 feet. And that's in the intertidal zone. You can find really long things in the subtidal zone. So when they're always underwater, but in the intertidal zone, uh, there's a unique environment that they're being smashed against rocks and the waves are actually breaking on them. So... Yes, it's good to be big in the summer because that means that you can uh, kind of compete against other organisms for, for light and space, and you can use that light to reproduce more. But you want to get small if, if the kelp, you know, we're going to give them the ability to want things here. If the kelp knew what was happening, they would want to get small, and they, they get small due to this interaction with the fluid environment, you know, being tangled and ripped up, but also uh, the interaction with their herbivores that chew on the frond and, and weaken it. And then there's also, um, because the, the wintertime has less sunlight, they slow down their growth, and that can also help. You know, they don't heal any wounds as quickly, and they can 
kind of just deteriorate due to slowed growth. So there's a lot of different biological and physical reasons that this happens, but um, there's a really cool seasonal cycle in uh, when it's good to be big and when it's bad to be big. Yeah. Okay, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM. This is The Graduates. We're definitely coming towards the end here. But another question I wanted to ask, you mentioned uh, invertebrates a little bit, but just in general, this kelp, this is not just like an isolated system, right? We're talking about the intertidal. So there must be a lot of organisms that rely on kelp or that interact with it just in general. Yes, because uh, kelp are a dominant canopy-forming organism, you've got lots of other seaweeds that might grow on the kelp. Even other individuals of the same species might grow on an older individual. There's there's species of amphipods, these little shrimp-like organisms that will burrow into the kelp, and they live there and have their, their family there. And then there's even, for this particular species of kelp, um, there's uh, a specific limpet that only lives on that kelp. So that's a really cool system for how does this particular species of limpet affect the kelp, and then how does the kelp affect the limpet, kind of a a mutual back and forth in terms of the fluid structure interaction. Because if the kelp breaks and that limpet's home is gone, but if the limpet doesn't wound the kelp, then there's there's no, it can't live there. Yeah. So just, yeah. There's a lot of cool things that live on the kelp. And in terms of tangling, increasing the amount of herbivores that live on the kelp, and I had some undergrads help me pick out every single amphipod, you know, shrimp-like organism, um, on a, a tangled kelp individual, and there was over 6,000 of them. So we were in the lab picking out individual little, you know, these are smaller than a centimeter in length. So it was very excruciating. And then we had to count them all. <laughs> Nice, fun. So you're uh, taking undergrads then, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, we are out of time here on The Graduates, but I always give everyone a chance uh, to get on the soapbox if they want. If there's anything, you know, that you think is really important to say to the public about your work or about science, now's the time. If not, that's fine, but I want to give you the option. Okay, well, so specific to my uh, study system, the next time that you're out walking on the beach and you happen to see a big mass of, of kelp that's been washed up, instead of jump roping or whipping your friends with it, take a take a chance to, to dig through that mass of kelp and see, you know, the amount of kelp that's there, all the, the animals living on it. And, um, and, you know, maybe you could even ask yourself a few questions of what happened to this kelp and why is it washed up and what's going to happen to it now. Um, those kind of basic curiosity questions you know, that might help your child or your your relative or even you begin a whole career that you never thought possible because that's kind of how I got started on this journey. Yeah, and we're definitely in a lucky place here in California having the Pacific Ocean nearby. So just a whole nother world out there in the ocean, right? And the yeah. beach is our, our way to connect to it. So yes. unless you want to get, do you wear giant like boots and like uh, water overalls to go into the tide? <laughs> uh, boots and rain pants. Yeah, I don't want to get swept off. Um, the, the ocean, I guess another important thing is that the ocean is very dangerous. So if you do find yourself like wanting to go tide pooling, always take people with you and uh, be wary of the ocean because we've got rogue waves that can suddenly come up on shore and rip you away and or you know push you over and uh, you can get hurt that way. So it's good to be curious, but it's also good to be safe. And 
Yeah, and uh, who said plants aren't dangerous, right? <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, at least the ocean. Okay, that's it for us here on The Graduates. My name's Tesla Munson. Today I've been joined by biologist Nick Burnett from the Department of Integrative Biology talking about his work in biomechanics and specifically with kelp here in the intertidal zones of California and trying to understand the forces that affect that kelp and uh, specifically the water and all these mechanical things and... Uh, yeah, it's been great having you, Nick. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Anytime. And that's it. As I said, for the graduates, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX, Berkeley.